Hello and welcome to the 75th edition of the ACC Now podcast. I'm Steve Wiseman from the Raleigh News and Observer hosting this week's edition. Uh, I'm the Duke beat writer for the paper and I'm pleased to be joined by the voice of the Blue Devils, David Shoemate. David, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm good, Steve. 75th edition. That's, that's like an anniversary edition, right? That's a, a big deal for the podcast. It's a big deal. And that's you're a big deal guest. So that, I don't know about that part of it, but the other side, I feel good. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. No, we had to get we had to get a big hitter here for this one. So no, no. Uh, we feel nice. We feel uh, honored to have you on this week's edition. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, you uh, uh, just to let everybody know, obviously, you're in your your sixth uh, sixth year. You started in 2017. Uh, as the voice of the Blue Devils for men's basketball and football, um, uh, taking over for for Bob Harris when he retired. Uh, just tell us a little bit about your background. I know you, I know you're a North Carolina native and you uh, graduated from App State. Uh, just uh, it, update the listeners a little bit on, on you know how you kind of came to, to this position where where you came from. Yeah, how long do we have? It's kind of a, a bit <laughs> of a strange journey along the okay. way. I, mentioned. Uh, I was born in the state, uh, went to high school and college in North Carolina, but. Uh, in between, I was kind of a, a journeyman. My dad was in the military for 30 years, so I moved around the country and around the world in some respects, spent some time in Panama and Hawaii. So that was really cool. Got, got a chance to see a, a good chunk uh, of the country and always knew I wanted to get into broadcasting, um, kind of worked my way through, had some fumbles along the way, some stops managing a restaurant and in law school, everyone has mistakes in their past. I've got yep. mine too. Uh, but uh, got in with a company that managed multimedia rights. When I say that, that's basically a company that, you know, sells advertising for radio broadcasts across the country and, and does things with different venues. At the time it was called ISP. It's, it's been merged and sold a couple of different times. And it's still the same company I work for now, which is Learfield. Uh, technically, obviously I work for Duke, but Learfield manages the broadcast rights for Duke for those that don't know. So that's, uh, the side of the business that, that I fall into, but work with them managing some broadcasts. Actually, I have a huge facility in Winston-Salem, and I was there uh, for about 10 years with the company and total spent some time in their Alabama office as well, down in Auburn. Managing broadcasts, doing national play-by-play, uh, worked my way up, had some opportunities to fill in for a bunch of different schools across the country, uh, one of those being working with Duke and got to know some people over on campus, whether it be John Jackson, whether it be Coach K, when I was doing a couple of basketball games. Because what happens, for those that don't know, you know, during football and basketball season, and Steve, you and I have talked about this a lot, there's just games that I can't do now. Back in the day, there were Bobs can't do because you have conflicts, so you get a chance to fill in um, and meet different people, and it was just great to meet them. And then, obviously, when Bob announced his retirement, it was an opportunity to talk further about the position, um, get into the pool, and, you know, these things are always tricky, but I knew I really wanted to be there, and, and luckily, I was probably one of a couple hundred that, that applied for the position and had some good conversations and um, was lucky enough to get the gig, so... That's a little bit about my background, kind of in the national play-by-play route, but before I got a chance to work with Duke. Yeah, that that's a uh, that's an interesting background for sure. Um, that's a lot of things a lot of people probably didn't know about you. Um, I'm curious, well, your restaurant experience. What did you learn from that? And, and uh, so, if if you want the story, so when in college, you know, everyone had a side job in college. I managed sure. a restaurant, or I, I didn't manage a restaurant. I waited tables for on the border. Anybody's ever eaten at one? Yeah, across the absolutely. So when I got out of college, and you know. Life gets real. We all know you're looking for a job. And that's what I knew. So I was like, well, I'll try this and was managing a restaurant. I actually got moved to Memphis, Tennessee to manage a restaurant. Um, and this is going to sound super Pollyannish, but I did it for about half a year, realized it wasn't for me. I didn't like it. And I wanted to go back and, and give my, you know, something else. I was interested in a choice. And my parents had always thought that, you know, I like to argue. So I'd be a good lawyer and things like that. So I applied for law school, took the LSATs. 
Um, actually went up to Hofstra Law School for a grand total of two weeks. Realized that wasn't for me. Uh, got out and moved back to home for a little bit, actually, and then got on with that company I was telling you about, basically doing part-time scoreboard updates for the Marshall Radio Network and okay. trying to work my way up. But, you know, it's humbling, but it was a good learning experience. It's actually something, I don't know how much you or your audience cares about this, but I, I talk with young broadcasters a lot about that kind of two years of my life because, you know, people see the squeaky clean thing at the end, what you're doing now and how cool it is and all that. And I think, I hope it's helpful for them to know, like, look, I've made mistakes, I've failed, and then you get up and, and you figure it out and, and you move on. But I don't think I'd be here without that learning experience of like, you know, all of us are maybe, I should just speak for me. Coming out of college, you're cocky, you think you're great. Yeah. You don't think you need to work out and sometimes you need to fall on your face. So speak before you can figure out the work that's involved to get somewhere. That is a great lesson for all. And uh, yeah, you know, I I was, I worked at McDonald's uh, in college. Um, I worked at a sporting goods store, like selling t-shirts and, you know, uh, uh, this is back in the pad boy days of the, of the uh, Pistons. Those are the hot selling the, the Jordan shirts back in Midwest. Anyway. Oh yeah. So, you know, we all got our backstory, right? Yeah. All our side gig and all that. And uh, before I, before I you know became a full-time newspaper employee. So um, yeah, it's, it's good stuff, man. Um, uh, yeah. And you made it. Yeah. It's squeaky clean. You, you get to this point. Everybody thinks you've been here all the time, but hundred uh, percent. it takes time to get there. Um, I, I do want to ask you about, about taking over for Bob and, you know, he'd been the voice for so long for, he did all those, you know, 400 and some football games in a row, uh, getting back to 1976. Um, you know, when, when that transition happened, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, how did you approach him uh, and how and to kind of, you know, take that next step? Well, it's funny, like when I was filling in, every time I'd call a game, I'd have a chance to call and, and talk to Bob about the team and, and kind of his expectations and things he's wanted done. But that was kind of like a, a professional relationship, just a quick conversation before the broadcast, make sure everything was kind of buttoned up. And then when I was able to to get the position, you know, we decided to be good to go grab lunch shortly after. Obviously, there's a lot that went into it for him. You know, that's the end of his career. And in so many ways, he was Duke. Uh, you know, there's Mike Krzyzewski and then maybe Bob Harris when you look yeah. at four decades. Um, so to have a chance to go grab a bite to eat with them and just get his advice on on you know, how to do things, how he stepped into it. And, and he talked to me about when he first got into the role, we actually weren't that different in age um, when we both got started. Um, and, and he talked about, you know, being your own person and not trying to be him and not trying to copy him, which is an obvious thing, but you know, sometimes the best advice is the simplest advice. So trying to step in and I made it very clear that, you know, he's always going to be the voice of the Blue Devils and I, I'm not trying to copy him or anything like that because there is no copying him and, and there's one of a kind. And, you know, so we've kept in touch. He comes to games every now and then he's been in the booth a couple of times. I know, yeah, you were very kind to amplify on social media. I put out there well, as well. And I hope anyone that doesn't know should know that he's going through some difficult health circumstances and we're trying to help out his family because there's some financial stuff that goes along with that. To boil down a little bit of a long story, he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's in the last couple of years. And obviously that requires a certain amount of care and, West Chester did the football games with him on the radio for a very long time, set up a GoFundMe. Um, you guys can go find it, but if anyone can contribute, that'd be greatly appreciated. And it's been awesome to see the outpouring of people um, that he's touched over the years that have contributed to that. I don't, I know that's probably not a piece of where you wanted to go, but I, I wanted to get that in there. Anything, anything we could do to help him out. It definitely is. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to bring that up too, that um, it was amazing over the last few weeks here, how uh, the Duke community in particular and college athletics community as a whole, 
stepped up to donate money to help uh, Bob's family and um, to, so he can get the full-time care that he now requires. Uh, it was just, it was going to be such a financial burden on his family. And uh, they've been able to get him into a place where he's getting the care he needs. And that's just, just wonderful. Um, you know, a, a tough situation. Uh, we hate to see it happen. Uh, but, uh, uh, but the way everybody uh, jumped in to help out, just so, so thankful. No, and it's been cool to see in, in the GoFundMe page, if you scroll down, they have comments. It's been awesome to read all the comments of different people that, you know, he's a part of these moments for for these these fans and and obviously the five national titles and everything that he's yeah. got a piece of. But And it's not just the calls, it's the personal touch to see him in a game. I mean, it's just been really cool to see all the different people that that he's touched. And I imagine for his family, that that's awesome to, to see as well, and, and for Bob too. And also along these lines, and you said, you know, um, uh, you're not trying to be him. You, you know, he used the voice of the Blue Devils. You have that job now, but you're your own person. That is a nice segue to what I want to talk about. Also, is about what we're going through with Duke basketball this year with with John Shire. He's not he's not Coach K. He's John Shire, and uh, um, he is in the job that Coach K had for the previous 42 seasons. Uh, so it is an adjustment for all of us to look over there and not see him, Coach K, stalking the sidelines and John doing his thing. Just um, with your behind the scenes and, and your access to, to John and the program, how have you witnessed the way John has kind of handled that situation and tried to, to make this his own thing? I think he's handled it extremely well from what I've seen. As you said, I'm, I have access to go to practice. I get to be around the team and, and see what they're like when they're traveling. And kind of what I was talking about was he's being his own person. Now, part of him is what he learned from Mike Krzyzewski. So obviously there's similarities, but it's not like he's trying to copy what Coach K did. That's just what he's picked up, what he likes, but he has his own feel. The the one thing that I think they both have in common that I haven't really heard anyone talk about is they both really know how to relate to people. Like I've talked for years about how Coach K was one of the emotionally, most emotionally intelligent people I've ever been around. And when I say that, I mean like knowing when someone needs a soft word of support or maybe a kick in the butt with his team or his staff or anything like that. I think John Shire has that same feel. His style may be a little bit different in how he goes about it, but he knows how to talk to people. He knows how to relate to people. Obviously, that's borne itself out in in terms of the recruiting trail and what he's done, but I think it's borne it out with this team because, I mean, you look at this season, there's a lot thrown into it. I mean, it was going to start with, and actually I was talking with Coach Shire couple summers ago when he first got announced that he was going to have the job and there was going to be a year in waiting. And he kind of joked, he's like, look, I know everyone says you don't want to be the guy to follow the guy. Like, I'm yeah. fully aware of that going into this. <laughs> but I mean, like, so there's that that hangs over when you first go in. How is this going to look? How is Duke going to look? That's the open question, particularly from the outside media. And then you have all these injuries you're dealing with, particularly to keep players before the season even gets underway. And, and then you have seasons within the injury and with, I'm sorry, entries within the season right. for those guys again, and also to your captain, you know, dealing with the toe injury throughout and to navigate all of that and still be in position here, you know, with a couple weeks left in the season, whether it be for an ACC title or obviously positioning for the in-state tournament, I think is pretty incredible because, you know, sometimes that stuff you see in different programs around the country where it gets sideways and it starts to spiral. And I think he's done a really nice job of keeping this team level and, you know, you look at, at where Duke is and it, in a pretty good spot in the ACC at, at nine and six and 18 and eight overall. And, you know, that fine line and, and you know, we can talk about, you know, what happened in Virginia on Saturday night. We can talk about a play here, play there. And, you know, you're looking at a very, you know, 20 and 
you six or whatever it might be, or twenty-two and four. That that that's where this team is right now. And I think it's impressive what they've been able to navigate. And I think it's a team, in my opinion, anyway, biased as it might be, that's a little bit undervalued as we as we look ahead to the postseason. This team certainly does have still room to grow. And I know it's weird to say that in the middle of February, but because of all the things you mentioned, the injuries and the um the stops and starts and everything. I talked to Whitehead about that the other night, Derek Whitehead. And I used that same phrase, the stops and starts of your season. How do you feel you are now? And he's like, I'm ready to to do more. You know, I think Lively is too, Derek Lively. Uh, there's there's a lot of things this team can do um, that they haven't had a chance to do already because of those those factors. And, uh, you know, a couple of the Virginia loss, Virginia Tech loss, those are tight losses. You're right. They could very easily be 20 and six or, you know, then be back in the top 25 where they normally could be. They're not that far away. Yeah, no, and that's the thing about, like, you know, their narratives, and I think social media kind of amplifies everything these days, So the extremes, right? So when it's going great, everything's taken to the extreme. You get into all-time great conversations, maybe a lot quicker than you did 10 or 15 years ago. And then when the slightest thing goes wrong, that extreme takes over. So I think that the challenge for coaches these days is how do you keep your team's effort, energy, and mentality consistent. And that's where I think John Shire's done a nice job of keeping this about the team and, and keeping them coordinated together and pulling in the same direction because, you know, I get to talk to all the different guys on the team in separate conversations and the um, consistency of the discussion to me is impressive and, and their focus on what they're trying to accomplish and how they're building and what they're working on and knowing what they need to clean up when something doesn't go right. It, it's not like you have guys running in different directions. It feels like they're all pulling in the same direction. And I think it'll be interesting to see now that they are, and I'm going to knock on every piece of wood that surrounds me, yeah. healthy and back together, <laughs> I, I think they could start to, to to build some things. Yeah. And, you know, it, they've had, there've been some things happen this year that haven't happened in a while to Duke basketball, right? They, they lost three games before January 1st. That hadn't happened in 40 years. Uh, the the lopsided losses at Miami and NC State. That hadn't happened in a long time since 82-83 to have two 20-plus point losses in league play uh, in the same year. And so that's a lot of pressure on John because he's trying to take over for Coach K and these things are happening. And so there's that, you know, there's part of the fan base and there's part of, I'm sure internally John's thinking, oh my God, you know, like I can't let this happen. I can't let this thing get off the rails, uh, which is the biggest fear of everybody, right? Uh, when, when Coach K retires. But yet, if he's keeping everybody on the same page as far as the message to the players, they're all pulling the same rope, like you said. Uh, that's a that's an important thing. That is a really important thing, I think. Well, I think you're exactly right, and I think what, what to me has kind of been impressive with John Shire, and I, I think one of the things that he has been very similar to how Mike Shashevsky went about things is is the emphasis on the presence you know through my job and your job when i talk to him sometimes you want to pull larger narratives like you were talking about or how does this look in totality or how do you look at the next three weeks and very consistently he'll say yeah i'm worried about the next opponent i'm worried about syracuse i'm worried about where we are now i'm worried about what we're going to do in practice today and i think that was a big secret to coach k's success i think that is a big reason john shire is able to navigate what's been going on this year with all the injuries and everything that we've talked about because you're right there there are different threads you can pull if you want to create a narrative and you can spin all sorts of things all sorts of different ways but at the end of the day that's not going to help you with the scout of the opponent that's coming up but i think that's one of the trickier things to do whether it be a player whether it be a coach is not worry about those narratives because you can't go and do anything about that 
but that's so easier said than done because the conversation, particularly when a place like Duke is always around things and people are going to pull um, at that sort of history. And sometimes those numbers get thrown out. Um, like you said, without context, you know, who were those three losses to before January 1st? Cause that matters to some extent. And, and how does that play and how did those games go and, and that sort of things. And you know, those look, I, there are different things you have to factor into this and the coaches aren't going to talk about this, but I will, you know, loss of Miami certainly was disappointing. Uh, obviously they didn't come out w- with the effort that they needed. The coaches have talked about that defensively needed to be better. But there's also the element of, I think, and you correct if I'm wrong, I think it's like three out of four years that Duke has played, you know, their rival North Carolina and then had to turn around and play on Monday night. And, and yes. this one on the road against the Miami teams, I'm not trying to make an excuse, but I do think there are things that go into this you have to think about and you have to put it in context. And look, that opportunity, everyone hopes that Duke is going to be there later on this season to play a Saturday-Monday turnaround ultimately. So it's also a learning experience because you're going to play a really good team after hopefully an emotional win. Mm-hmm. So that's the types of stuff and learning experiences you have to go through with the young team. And look, this the other piece to it to me and why you have to stay in the present is this isn't college football. It, it, more than four teams get invited to the party. So yeah. a lot of how things are going to be judged and how things are viewed right, wrong, and different is going to happen here in a few weeks. You want to obviously be invited. You want to earn that opportunity. You want to be in a, in a seating position and a destination that works, but there's a bunch of crazy stuff that happens in those three weeks. And that's where reputations are made. And I think that's where everyone kind of has their eye on the ball, earning that opportunity and then being in a position where you can do something when you get there. And all we need to do is look, you know, eight miles down the road to last year. And at this point, Carolina was a bubble team uh, a year ago and they're kind of a bubble team now, but that's a whole other conversation we'll have. But, um, they played their way, you know, with the, with the wins they had, including the one at Coach K's last game at Cameron, into the tournament. And as an eight seed, instead of going to Dayton or whatever, and they got in, and then they off, knocked off Baylor, and there they are in the final four. And they got to win the championship game. So there is, you know, there was still room for that team to grow last year, right? And I think that's the case with this Duke team because I mentioned Whitehead, I mentioned Lively. Um, Whitehead is is starting to show some perimeter scoring that this team really needs. Uh, they have not been a great shooting team overall this year. They've been a little better lately, passing the ball, moving around, getting some open shots better. Uh, Proctor's play is improved, and Whitehead especially, too, on the perimeter. Those two factors, I think, are really huge for this team. No, for sure. And and we, you know, I've kind of framed it some in terms of the misfortune, but you you look at those three games early in league play where Jeremy Roach had to be out as he was trying to get that toe to a place where it could be managed the rest of the season. And that kind of forced the hand of Tyrese Proctor having to take over the point guard duties. And sometimes you find something. And obviously, it was always known he could do that if he needed to. But then when Jeremy Roach comes back, that somewhat takes the pressure off of him to have to run the offense if he can focus on his individual offense. And I think that's been a huge weapon. You know, those back-to-back 20-point games were obviously significant that he had about a week ago. So you find some stuff, and that frees up Tyrese to run things. Uh, obviously, at times, he's taken really good care of the basketball. I think Georgia Tech, he had one of those crazy assisted turnover games where it's like 8-1 or 9 nothing, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you, you find that. You you have the calm, the demeanor that Tyrese Proctor has. It almost looks effortless when he's out there. And, you you know, weird comparison, but same flavor to me of, like, Luka Doncic when you watch in the NBA where everything kind of looks like it's in slow motion, but people have a hard time dealing with it. When I watch Proctor play, it kind of has the same feel where it doesn't feel like it's this blistering stuff but he's always seemed able to to find himself some space and hit some shots and you mentioned the jump shooting Derek Whitehead has just been on a tear 
over the last six, seven games or so, shooting like 50% from three. I, I still think Proctor is a really pure shooter that could that could explode at some point and have one of those five oh six or three type games. It's such a soft release. And one of the I don't recency bias kind of creeps into this, but one of the big takeaways from the Notre Dame game, from my perspective, yes, you want to get a win, you want to bounce back from what happened over the weekend, but Early in the season, Mark Mitchell, by percentage, had been the Blue Devils' best three-point shooter. He hasn't taken many since the turn of the new year and uh, hadn't made a ton, but to hit two, but also just have the confidence there, you're open to step up and hit that shot. And Steve, you know, you can probably speak to your better than I can. You, you've watched a lot of college basketball, Duke and other places. There's a lot of guys who don't want that shot. You know, when when they get it, they're looking to kick or pass or, or you see the double clutch or, or the moment of panic. So to me, it's not just the fact that he hit the shot. It's the fact that when he caught it, he planned to shoot it and he planned to hit it. It was all in one motion. There was no doubt. And for a freshman, that's really impressive to me. And especially, I think he'd been like one of his previous 10 from, from three coming into that game. Uh, he had been a good shooter lately. Obviously, Notre Dame left him open in the corner for a reason, right? I mean, when you're shooting like that, that somebody's got to sag off somebody. That's who it's going to be. But you're right. He got the ball. If he hesitates at all, somebody's going to close out on him and make it a tougher shot, and uh, he might miss it, and then Notre Dame would have a chance to win. We're talking to, just to give everybody context, 10.8 seconds left in that game on Tuesday night. Duke's up by a point. Mitchell hits that three-pointer, pretty much ends the game, gives Duke a four-point lead. Too, too much for uh, Notre Dame to overcome. That was a huge win. That was a huge bounce back from the Virginia game, and I, I need to go back to the Virginia game for a second, too, if I can't. We were both at John Paul Jones Arena on Saturday when that whole situation at the end of the game unfolded, um, you know, where I was sitting in the, with the, the other writers, uh, a lot of confusion, so much confusion. And I'm curious from your point for where you were sitting and everything, did you get any more information? What, what was what was passed on to you about what the officials decided about that foul that was called uh, on Virginia against Filipowski that would have put him at the line to win the game? No, for sure. So obviously our broadcast position, it, it varies from, from venue to venue at home at the Crow's Nest at Virginia. We happen to be right next to the team bench. Um, so you could sit there and, and see what the officials are looking at. And because of that, at some of these larger arenas, for those that don't know, you couldn't see when you have these big video boards, Madison Square Garden is one of them. Virginia does this as well, where they actually have a TV monitor underneath the video board, like a second video board. So those on press row and some fans that are kind of seated lower can see stuff. So we had a pretty good look at a replay when they went to the monitor. And honest, Steve, from my perspective, when you see it, I think the foul is pretty clear. I think when you see it on replay, I thought it was a fair judgment by them at the end to say, let's go to the monitor to see if the foul was before the time ran off. But when you saw the replay, it was obvious to me with the 10th or two um, that he was hit. And that's the reason he missed the shot. And I we were kind of talking from our perspective about you know what a cool kind of story it had been a difficult afternoon for Kyle Filipowski and he's been the leading scorer all season long he takes that moment you know it'd be easy we're talking about earlier about Mark Mitchell to say it's not my day and not want to have that aggressive drop to the basket but no he goes up sacrifices his body hurts his ankle and he's going to have a chance to go to the line and win the game with a, a tenth or two and then when the officials say kind of make that motion where they wave off, like declaring the game over or end of regulation, obviously, you're kind of just in shock. Um, and we don't get a direct explanation. Sometimes they go over and talk to television. You could see the officials come over um, and talk to John Shire. And, you know, I can read lips to some extent and, and see what's going on, but you also want to be careful that you don't 
report something incorrectly or, or give right. piecemeal information there. So to some extent, you're a little bit confused uh, of why they did what they did. And, you know, I don't think we need to rehash everything, but I think my confusion in the moment is warranted yeah. by what the ECC released later that night, because yeah. it, it seemed very straightforward and there was a different outcome that obviously the, the league has said was incorrect. Yeah, I think we were all, I know I was, uh, prepared for, for Flip to have two free throws. I think, you know, I'm writing my story as the game's going on there, and I'm thinking, okay, he's going to have a shot at this. Because they called the foul, so you can't go to the monitor and wipe off, wipe off a foul. So usually it's going to happen, right? It's just a matter of how much time is left or mm-hmm. or who the foul was on maybe even. You know, if they're trying to look at, con, you know, make sure they can get the right person to, that, that assess the foul to. But uh, just an odd situation, and, uh, you know, hopefully that won't happen again anymore. Hopefully they've had the right conversations with the officials to remind everybody. And, by the way, this was a good crew. This is the crew of guys that work deep in the NCAA tournaments, Final Fours and all that. Um, so it's hard to point it and say, oh, what a, these guys are terrible. They're, not, they're some of the best in the country, and it still happened to them, which that's a whole other conversation we have about officiating, you know. And there are things that I think, like, there's the rehashing the mistake and obviously really disappointing. And as John Shire said earlier in the week, not acceptable to, right. to not have a rule, um, a rule interpretation correctly. But I do think there has to be, and this is just my opinion, things you take from this and things you move forward on it. And you and I've talked about this separately. It, it's my take that look, officials have a difficult job and obviously these rule books are complicated and, and things to, to know. I believe the SEC has done this. I think there could be some merit to the ACC going to some sort of centralized replay office to where you can have time to work through all the machinations, have someone who's literally in another place and and not in a hostile atmosphere, an emotionally charged atmosphere making that decision, but maybe even someone who has opportunity, literally if they need to flip through and and look at game situations and scenarios and rule books and stuff like that, why not? For all the replay reviews and uh, that you see all over the place in that moment, why not take as much time as you need to make sure that you know it's been adjudicated correctly? Yeah, and uh, you know this is before uh, you, your time doing Duke football, but obviously the Duke Miami finish, which you're going for all the scars today, which everybody's familiar with, <laughs> uh, led to some changes in the protocols of the ACC. Right, the way the way the way replays are handled, uh, and that that turned out to be a good thing. We haven't had a, a, a reoccurrence of something like that, thank God, uh, where a game was, was messed up that bad. Maybe this will be what happens from that. You know, maybe Duke has to <laughs> take the wounds <laughs> to help out everybody else. I don't know. Alter, altruism. Duke's all into altruism, right? <laughs> We're laughing about that now, maybe. And what, maybe 10 years we can laugh about this. I doubt it. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um yeah, we're, uh, uh, we're about, about done here with our time on this podcast. But speaking of football, I do want to bring up real fast um, the the change that happened with Duke football. You know, we all um, appreciated David Cutcliffe and the job he did getting Duke football to where it was during his tenure. He brought it from the worst in the country to a team that went to bowl games six out of seven years. But the time had kind of come, the, the program had kind of petered out. And boy, Mike Elko really just made a huge difference. I think beyond... We all thought he could do in the first year. I don't know what you think about that, but I mean, to me, getting to nine wins was pretty amazing. Well, I've said this before, and because it's to me the most striking thing about his first season was being at his introductory press conference and knowing his reputation and what he's done with defenses, obviously at Notre Dame, Wake Forest, and then at Texas A&M. And he goes to the podium and he kind of rolls out his philosophy and and the term grind, and he kind of works through each letter. 
and he gets to the end and he says now the plan is to win now and i think collectively everyone was like hmm just because it'd been a difficult couple of seasons i, I think yeah. outside of perspective um and i think you know what a message to your players on your current team and, and what a message to come in and say this isn't about me this isn't about you know me getting my coaches or my guys and and we're going to do this you know it would have been easy to step to that podium and say, this is a long-term thing. I need you to stick with me as I'm doing. Then he said, now. Yeah. And he got to work with the current guys, brought in David Feely. It was just a revelation in the weight room. Brought in, obviously, some talented coordinators, some talented coaches, and they got to work. And you started to see it in the spring, mainly in the way the guys' bodies changed. Just the muscle they were putting on, how much quicker they were in certain drills and things like that. And then you saw it over the summer, but I still think there was some uncertainty going into that simple game of like, what was this going to look like in an actual game? Uh, I think because you know, obviously the last couple of years have been pretty disappointing. And then you go out and you shut somebody out. And it's like, well, that hasn't been done in a while. There have been some defensive struggles the last few years. Yeah. 30 nothing. And I think a lot of people, you know, because of from the national media perspective or, you know, had preconception of what this team was going to be. You could see some of the takeaways from that game being more about Temple than about Duke and saying all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, they started to build the pieces. Northwestern had a big one over Nebraska. Duke goes out and beats Northwestern. And then the Virginia game, I think, was also very impressive because there had also been, even in some of the successful seasons in the last five or six years, really impressive non-conference seasons. And then in ACC play, there'd be some struggles. So then to come out and really manhandle a team like Virginia was awfully impressive and then you know just there were different performances the Miami with all the different turnovers the variety of ways that this team won and the way Mike Elko was able to take a group and you look at the guys who were significant for this team yes there were some fresh faces Joyner in the secondary certainly stands out Kim Dillon had an impact some graduate transfers along the offensive line but Riley Leonard was here last year Dwayne Carter was here last year all the running backs were here last year. Yeah, I mean, Kamala was here. So yeah. it was, and that to me was the cool piece of the story. Obviously, what Mike Elko did was really impressive, and he was the one that stitched it all together. But you have to feel good for those guys that took their lumps the last few years and then come out, and they're the ones who turn it around. That that to me was the most impressive thing about Mike Elko was the now piece of it. It makes you really excited about what he's going to build moving forward. Yeah, and those guys, uh, you know, with transfer portal. Some people did leave, right? We had there was there were some guys that transferred out. Those guys could have too. Uh, they decided to stick it out, and and then they were rewarded. And now a lot of them are sticking around for another year. Yeah, uh, you know when they when they could have headed out. So uh, it's just a a complete turn of the of the atmosphere around the program, and uh, uh, it's something that you know I'm not sure we all saw coming this quickly, but here it is. And this next season is going to have a lot of big games coming up, so it's going to be a fun fun year of football, maybe. No, I mean, just to think about Duke opening on Labor Day night against Clemson at home. I mean, that's going to be electric. And I think, you know, it, it speaks a lot to what Mike Elko has done. I think it speaks to some extent about what David Cutcliffe did and his time really resurrecting the program when it was kind of in the wilderness a little bit. And Mike Elko brought it back to, to national prominence to where I don't think six, seven years ago, maybe, you know, certainly two decades ago, people would have said that's never going to happen. And, and now here it is, one of the marquee games of the opening weekend, and people are talking about the Blue Devils as a contender in the ACC, largely because of what Mike Elko did a year ago. And, uh, yeah, uh, Elko even has said he would have taken this job if not for David Cutcliffe. 
even though they didn't have some kind of long-term relationship, they weren't grid friends, I mean, anything like that. They just didn't, didn't run across each other, different age groups and everything. But but Tut got Duke football to a position where Elko was like, okay, I can come in there and do something. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been the case. You know, a lot of people, as we know, before Cuthcliffe was hired, it's before you and I were both here. But uh, that wasn't a job that a lot of people were like, hey, I can't wait to get Duke to coach football. <laughs> Yeah, and Kevin White with the facilities and the enhancements that have been done to to bring everything to to where you know you get to come to it. I, I certainly think Duke Football Stadium, in terms of facilities, is one of if not the nicest in the ACC when you come in and what they've done with the indoor practice facility. So it's impressive from a facility standpoint. But to your point, Mike Elko said pretty pointedly, David Cutcliffe proved you can win here, and that's what made the the position more attractive to him and why he's ultimately here. And goodness knows he proved it in his first season with nine wins. He did. And uh, so spring football be coming up. Uh, the spring game is going to be after the end of the NCAA tournament, which uh, that's the that's the front front burner item for us now, right? Is uh, is getting ready for March and where where we're going to go? I know the ACC tournaments in Greensboro, and then who knows where the Blue Devils will go after that? Um, we thought maybe it's going to start in Greensboro. I think that's probably unlikely. Uh, they're probably not going to be a top four seed. So um, we'll see. It's going to be an interesting ride. But uh, John Shire is going to take off and have his chance to. To, to stamp uh, um, uh, um, uh, March performance on his record in the first year. I mean, but that's why we love it. Because, I mean, you look at all the, the different narratives that go around and it's fun to talk about and peek about. But, you know, Duke goes to the Final Four last year. And I remember when people saw the selections and said, oh, West Region. Well, Duke hasn't had a lot of success out West. And then, you know, oh, Duke's going to have a hard time with Texas Tech. And then you win that game and then you beat Arkansas and you're in the Final Four. So yeah. to me, that's why we love it. You, you never know what the storyline is going to be, who's going to step up and be the guy. Um, that leads and and the thing that I think for, for Duke fans should make everyone excited and you kind of touched on this as we were talking about the individual pieces you can see different guys like if, if we look back in two months and said wow Derek Whitehead took over college basketball for six weeks I don't think you'd say that was shocking I think you'd say like yeah you could see signs of it and now it came to the front or if that was Tyrese Proctor or if Derek Lively set some sort of lock record in the NCAA tournament you know I don't think anyone's going to be like oh that was shocking and we're talking about those guys. Filipowski's a double-double machine. So, and then Jeremy Roach with everything he did last year. So I think that's the reason you have optimism and you look and say this team can do some things because you see the pieces. And then how does it work collectively? I think that's why we're excited to see what this looks like. Yeah, there's been little pieces along the way. And uh, John Shire's hope and the Blue Devils fans' hope is that in March they're all going to come together and uh, it's going to be an exciting run like it was last year. Well, David, listen, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode on the number 75 of the of the ACC Now podcast. Well, put that in. What is that? That's a diamond one, right? 75 is a diamond. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Here you go. I appreciate you having me on. Okay. Thanks, David. And everybody join us again next week for the ACC Now podcast. Thanks a lot.